We started this whole thing by taking a look at God, His Trinity. We looked at how God speaks and God reveals Himself. Um, theologians call this the self-disclosure of God, that God reveals to us who He is. And then we also looked at one of the ways in which God speaks and reveals Himself is through creation. God created all things. And yet last week we looked at how that God created uniquely mankind, you and I. God created us in His image, in His likeness. We are not animals, nor are we God. We are unique. We're made in the likeness, made in the image of God. Today, one of the things that we're going to, or the main thing we're going to be taking a look at is this idea of sin Entering the world, theologians call this the fall. Everything goes horribly wrong. Everything's great. Alright, God creates all things good. Once God finishes it all, He looks at it all in summary. God says these two little words over, three words. It is, four words, sorry. It is very good. I'm not that good at math. It is very good. It is all very good. Everything that God created God summarizes by just simply with that declaration, it is all very good. And all that happens for basically two chapters. Alright? Two chapters. Everything's very good. Alright? We leave off chapter two, basically everything in the garden. We got mankind, Adam and Eve. They're eating fruit. They're naked, playing around with animals. It's glorious. Alright? That happens for two whole chapters. Then chapter 3, everything changes. Everything folds. Everything collapses. Everything breaks down. So what we're going to look at today in terms of all of this, hopefully, perhaps, will maybe provide some insight as to why our world is in the way that it is. Let me give you an example. We live in a world that, for the most part, we just take for granted that everybody has polices, police, and everybody have have sheriffs, and everybody has laws, and everybody has jails, and everybody just has locks in their doors and raises Rottweilers to attack bad people that come into your backyard in the middle of the night. Everybody has guns that are loaded by their bed, and everybody just has knives or a can of mace in case predator comes and stalks them. Right? Isn't that just the way we live? We take all this stuff for granted, and the reality is, is all of this is the effect of sin. All of it. We have all of these things in the world in which we have today, we live today, because of the effects of sin. Everybody's afraid of each other. Everybody's fearful that someone else is going to take advantage of them and work them over or, you know, uh, uh, ruin their life or murder them or something along those lines. So everybody's suspicious of everybody else. That's the world in which we live. And so we have locks on our doors to protect ourselves from the bad guys. We have wars to kill the bad guys. The problem is that nobody can really determine who the bad guys are. Al-Qaeda thinks they're the good guys. America's the bad guys. Americans, we think Al-Qaeda's the bad guys and we're the good guys. Something is not quite right in the world in which we live. Two old chapters. Everything was rhythmic. Everything was the way that God intended it to be. It was good. Somewhere along the line, everything breaks its rhythm. Everything is crushed. Everything is fractured. And yet there are still these traces or these remains of God's likeness upon this creation. I think it was one of the great reformers that basically viewed the world in which we live in today as basically being the leftover or the remains of an ancient great civilization. If you've ever been to ruins, maybe if you've been to England or Scotland or 
Central and South America, and you've been able to see some of these remains, you realize it's just stone, and maybe some of the carvings or the uh, layout of an ancient road system or whatever, they're just remains. But you catch little glimpses of the fact that at one point, this must have been brilliant. This must have been amazing. However, it just remains today. That's the world in which we live. We see remains of greatness. We see remains or traces or echoes of goodness. This is why uh, theologians would call what we're going to look at in a minute here uh, the depravity of man, meaning mankind has become sinful, not ultimately sinful, meaning we are not as bad as we could be. This is why some people will argue, you know, gosh, my great-grandma, she hates God, but she's so sweet and her cookies are great. Right? I mean, do you think, you think she's a bad person? That's my point, is that not that people are as bad as they could be, but however, left in our own natural state, we are all children, sons and daughters, of Adam and Eve. We'll look at that in a moment here. So with that, there's several questions that I, I basically want to be asking as we kind of work our way through this and kind of move along. So the first question I want to try to ask is somehow get some sort of a working definition of what sin is. So the first question is this, what really is sin? Here's my, here's my definition. Sin is a dishonoring of God by preferring other things over Him and acting on those preferences. Okay? Actually, I didn't make this up. I added a word or two. But this is John Piper. All right, he's one of my favorite guys. I love him. And this is one of the best ways I've ever heard it described. And he just puts it this way. A dishonoring of God by preferring other things over God and acting upon those preferences. That's really at the heart of what sin is. It is a preferring. We would rather have something else other than God. A biblical uh, background or backbone for this would be Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. It says this. My people, God speaking here, have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewn out for themselves cisterns, for themselves broken cisterns that cannot hold any water. So here's God speaking, making a declaration over His people who have gone astray. He says, my people, people of Israel, the way that they have sinned is they have rejected me. They've turned their back on me. And I love the picture of this because God says, look, I'm living water. Now, you've got to somehow grasp this image. Here you are. You live in a desert. Water is more valuable in that culture than gasoline is in our culture. All right? It is the premium of things that people need. Okay? So here, God says, listen, my people have rejected me. I'm a fountain of living water. And instead, they've actually hewn up for themselves. What they would do, they would carve these big trenches or cisterns into the stone. So when it rains, like it did last night, all that water comes into those cisterns. But here's the other thing, too. It's kind of dirty water, right? Bugs are in there, uh, dust, and all sorts of spider webs, and snakes get in there, and scorpions are in the desert. Like, and God says, listen, they've turned their back on me, fountain of living water, and the drunk toilet water. They would rather have water out of a leaky toilet than me. God says, that's evil. That's, that's our sin. That's what sin is. It is a dishonoring of God 
because we've turned away from Him as being the one that offers Himself as being the most satisfying of all things. And instead, we've preferred other things to God. That's, that's a working definition of sin. So as we move on from that, I want to basically ask the question, where did sin come from? Where did all this come from? So if you guys have your Bibles, hopefully you all do. If you don't have one, you can grab one there in the back. Or if you want a nice leather-bound one, always look in our uh, Lost and Found. There's some great ones in there. Just scratch out the name and put your own name in there. They're great Bibles. They also make great gifts. Please take them. Genesis chapter 3 is what we're going to be doing now. Is we're going to be working our way through Genesis chapter 3. All of this basically begins here, or the basis of sin or the fall starts here in Genesis 3, and it's described very clearly. So, verse 1 says this. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. <coughs> Excuse me. So what was happening here, first of all, you know, we read the story of Genesis, and we oftentimes think of uh, the story of Genesis chapter 3 as being the account of original sin. In reality, it's not the account of original sin. Sin actually has already been on the earth, or been on, in existence, prior to chapter 3. Satan was created, we're told, in, in, as, as being a servant of God, and he was created with all of the other heavenly angels or heavenly hosts, and God made angels in certain rankings. That's why when you read in your Bible, you'll come across passages that talks about seraphim or cherubim and all these other things. And, you know, contrary to whatever Hallmark, Hallmark has done to angels, angels are actually beautiful, beautiful creatures. Not these little fat babies that have got wings, all right? They're beautiful creatures. And somewhere along the line, we're told that Satan rebelled against God. Satan desired to be like God. He desired to be like the Most High God. And we're, we're told in, uh, in Revelation, I think around chapter 12, is that what happened was that God cast Satan to the earth. And in casting Satan to the earth, one-third of all of the angels followed Satan. And in uh, Revelation chapter 12, we're basically told that Satan, or this fallen angel, and so another word that's going to be used is dragon. Satan is a dragon. In fact, as we go through this and talk about this, I'm going to be trying to shift the metaphor in terms of what Satan is, because I think sometimes in our culture, the enemy's done a really good job at um, transforming or reducing the concept of what Satan is. Right? When we, I even asked my kids last night. We were kind of going through this passage last night. It says, what do you think about when you think of Satan? Right? Think of like a little caricature, right? Maybe like a cartoon character. He's got red tights, pointy tail, and a pitchfork, right? And he sits on your shoulder. That's Satan. Problem is, is that's a deduction of who he is. Satan is not that. Satan is, is, is a demon. He's very crafty. He's very smart. Satan has lived around a lot longer than you. He understands the world in which we live in. He's very crafty. And Oftentimes we think that we're smarter than him or more powerful than him. We're not. Satan is very powerful, and that's why the word that's going to be used for Satan is the dragon. So I'm going to try to refer to Satan as the dragon. At least somehow when we think of dragon, we think of something that's dreadful or that's fearful. That's something that at the same time, it's great, it's powerful, it's strong. That's Satan. He is the dragon that was from before the creation of mankind. He had fallen 
And here he shows up somehow in the form of a serpent. Maybe he uh, possesses this particular animal. Whatever the case is, here's what happens. It's Adam and Eve in the garden. They're eating fruit. They're naked, hanging out with God, loving his creation, enjoying one another. And all of a sudden, here's where the story goes. It says, and the serpent was more crafty than all of the other beasts of the field than the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? So here's what happens as he's talking with uh, Eve. And thanks, Robert. I need some water. As they're talking, what's going to go on here, what's going to happen here, is Satan's basically going to make these arguments with Adam and Eve, specifically with Eve, and he's going to be challenging God. So here's what he asks the question again. Did God actually say to you, you should not eat of any of the trees of the knowledge of good and evil, or any of the trees throughout the garden? I mean, is that what, is that what God said, Calvary Slow? God said, don't eat any tree. Is that what he said? Now, what he said? Total twisting the Word of God. It's exactly what Satan does. He's always done that, and he always does that. This is not just something that happened in the past. It's something that Satan still does today. He twists God's Word to somehow get us to be tempted to fall out of relationship with God and to go into a direction that we ought not to ever go. And one of the ways in which he does this is he begins to cast doubt, settle doubt upon, one, what God has said, and two, upon God's goodness. That's where this whole thing is going to be going. It says, And then the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Is that exactly what God said? No. Because earlier in chapter 2, God just said, don't eat of the fruit of the tree. But here Eve adds to it. But God said, don't eat and don't touch. So here, for whatever reason, she adds to it. And as a result of that, again, it twists just very subtly. And I think the lesson that has to be understood from this is, guys, the Bible, the Word of God, it's not optional for us to somehow make it say what we want to say. That's the world in which we live in. I mean, it's the world in which we live in. We want to make the Bible say what, it, what we want it to say. Rather than living our lives in accordance to what the Bible teaches, we want the Bible to kind of confirm our lifestyles. We can't do that. Otherwise, we will face judgment of God in the same way Adam and Eve did. So here's what's happening. She's having this conversation with the serpent, which is strange, all right? But apparently, nobody's surprised by this. So some have suggested maybe at one point in the garden, C.S. Lewis capitalizes on this, right? He kind of, I think, leans towards this concept that maybe at one point animals talk. Maybe there was like, you know, dialogue between animals. They're not concerned about this. They're not freaking out like, you're a serpent. You're talking to me. You shouldn't be doing this, right? It's just this natural conversation. She's having this conversation with the serpent. The reality is some of you are having conversations with people reading books, logging on the blogs, engaged in conversations that you should not be engaged in. What should Eve have done? Just walked away. And Satan's just like, hey, look, you you shouldn't trust what God says. Eve should have just walked away. All right? Someone might be asking, well, what's Adam doing at this point? We'll look at that in just a moment here. All right? I'm going gonna, gonna to look at Adam in a second here. But the fact of the matter is, is some of us have these conversations 
and are reading things, are engaged in things that really are, we, we need to be careful, all right? Sometimes it's like, well, maybe there's some good, maybe we can somehow bring conformity of goodness into it. You know, listen, there are some conversations we should just never have. Just never have. We should run away from, we should flee from. And here's what's happening. She's engaged in this conversation. Her mind is being twisted. She's becoming confused. All right? I would imagine prior to this conversation with Satan, her relationship with God was wonderful. Imagine conversations with God are just full of, of insight and truth and wisdom and knowledge and blessing and peace. Here she's having this conversation with Satan. She's confused. All right? And that's where conversations with Satan go. So you shall not eat of the tree, a fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse 4. Then the serpent said to the woman, Will you not surely die? She says, You're not going to die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her. So here's what Satan does. He basically comes to her and he says, listen, the reality is, is God's lying to you. God's lying to you. And this is the way Satan works. Is he comes to us and he basically makes an appeal to our pride. Here's what, here's what he's doing. He's basically coming to Eve and he's like, listen, you deserve better. You deserve more. I mean, God's withholding good stuff from you. I mean, he's giving you all these treats, but I mean, look at the tree in the middle of the garden. It's really good. Yeah, but God said don't eat it. Yeah, but the only reason why God said don't eat it is because he knows if you eat it, you'll become like him. Here's the irony of this whole deal. Were they not already like God? Weren't they? They were made in the image of God. They were already like God. But somewhere in her mind was this thought, maybe I can be more like God. Maybe I could be God. And somehow in the middle of all of this is this root of pride that says, God's withholding something very good for me. and I deserve better. I deserve more. And here's the way Satan makes his appeal to us. All the time. This is the way he works. All the time. You know, uh, I think it was Augustine who basically says the root of all evil and sinfulness and wicked desire really is pride. At the center of pride is the letter I. It's I. It's me. I'm at the center of it all. I deserve more. And look, pride, even though it's packaged in modern day terminology, self-esteem, still pride. Anytime we even try to repackage it, reconform it, to make it somehow a little bit more appealing and sound a little bit more docile and less invasive and less horrible, it's Still the center of it all. And at the root of it is, I deserve more. Look, I mean, I'm, I'm a human. I've got human rights or I have abilities. I should be getting more. And that becomes this root that says, I need more. And unfortunately, God is bad because he's withholding it from me. So here's what happens. We say things like this. Like, listen, you know, God wants me to be happy. And I'm not happy. So our thinking says, I deserve to be happy, so I'm going to find my happiness someplace else. I deserve to have highs, so I'll go get high. I deserve to have a spouse, 
I'm going to go find a spouse. I don't really care what God has to say. We keep working this all the way through over and over and over again. This is where, this is the heart, this is the root behind everything every human being in this world operates, thinks, works, acts. Goes back to the sense of pride interlocked in this concept that, that God is withholding something very, very good for me. In reality, God's bad. And I'm right. I know better. I'm smarter. And this is phenomenal when you think about this. In the book of Romans, in our chapter 11, God, Paul says, how inscrutable are God's ways. I mean, this is like a third grader challenging Stephen Hawking upon his thesis on black holes. Like, are you really sure? Are you really sure? I know what a black hole is. I drew one yesterday with a crayon. I don't, I think your theories are way off. Alright, I saw in a pop-up book something that just really stimulated my thinking. Alright? And here we are, as human beings, we're like looking at God, like, God, are you really sure? The Bible says God does not need our counsel. God knows everything. God has control over all things. I mean, God never will come to us and be like, hey, listen, I got these fish at the very bottom of the street. They're five miles down at the bottom of the street. There's no sunlight there. I'm trying to figure out ways to get beams of light down there so that they don't have white skin, so that they might have a much better life. Do you have any ideas? Do you have any ideas? I mean, you're human. You're really smart. Right? I mean, we, we, we think in these ways, like somehow maybe by me challenging, questioning God, that maybe we've got a little bit better insight on it than God does. We don't. And you say what happens when we're just buying the same old lie that Adam and Eve had. Okay, here's what happens as she's engaged in this conversation. It goes on, and then it says in verse, uh, just around verse 6, it talks about, she looks at this, and she says, pleasing to the eyes. What we're to be doing, how to be living, how our families are to be kind of played out, or what our roles in life are to look like, or Everything else is basically affected by our perspective or our understanding of God. So therefore, central to a proper understanding as to how we live is really a proper understanding of how God has created us. So with that, I want to ask basically a series of questions that we're going to essentially just look at one by one to kind of make our way through a series of passages. We're going to begin, so if you want, you can turn to Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 26 is where we're going to basically launch Everything from, got a lot of verses to cover here this morning. As I said last week, kind of the rule of it is this. If you have anything that you hear me say that you agree with, you like, you can shout, you can say amen, you can jump, not very long, we'll take you down. But if you don't like what I have to say, you can email James Ray. He'd be happy to take all your complaints, anything that you just have a problem with. Just email James. That's James at Calvary Slow. He'd be happy to help you. Okay? But what we're going to be doing here this morning is we want to understand how humanity fits in this larger picture of God at work from Trinity, ultimately into creation, through the very end, book of Revelation, where God is back, or God is seated on the throne, worshipped and adored by all creation, basically reclaimed, brought back to what God had originally intended for it to be, and in between, we've got this little section called humanity. 
So that's what we're going to be trying to take a look at. Everything stems from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It starts off here by saying this. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And then we'll stop right there and we'll look at more in a second here. But in the very verse that we just looked at, we have got God, in the beginning God, who's Trinitarian. We've got the Trinity, with our, which is our very first study. The second thing, God will create. God's already created creation. God has created or spoken. God has revealed something of whom, who He is. Uh, thirdly, we have God created mankind in His image. So we've got the Trinity. We've got God speaking. We have creation. And then we have humanity. That's what we'll be taking a look at here this morning. So with that, let's just jump in and start asking some of the questions. So the first question I want to ask is this. How was man created? How was man created? Well, take a look at the verse again. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, or the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over everything, everything that's on the earth, and every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. Some scholars and theologians have felt that there's kind of a, a, a difference between image and likeness. I think they're basically just synonymous terms, stating that in God's image and in God's likeness, we were created to reflect something of God. So first of all, we see that we were made in God's image. What does this mean, really, to be in the image of God? Okay, A lot of people have tried to assume or you know, ask questions, what does it look like to be in the image of God? A lot of scholars, a lot of theologians have tried to kind of work through this. One of the things that sometimes they kind of come up with and think about is this, is that mankind has intelligence. You know, man is unique, made in the image of God, in that he can think. And part of uh, the overflow of thinking is uh, being able to make language, make alphabets, kind of make pronunciations of sounds. Through intellect, we're able to kind of make books and poetry and all of these other things that essentially arise and come out of intelligence. We think critically. We know how to take ideas and think through them and work through them. We think about in terms of problem solving, when there's an issue that's going on in the culture or some sort of a disease, we have people that are able to think critically and think um, strategically and try to figure out ways to solve certain problems. All of these are definitely parts of the concept, the larger whole of being made in the image and in the likeness of God. God obviously is intelligent. Okay. The other thing is that uh, it's also believed that God is creative. And therefore, uh, one of the ways in which we are made in the image and likeness of God is that we too are deemed with creativity. Right? Um, mankind is making music and making art and enjoying art and trying to understand things in sort of an, an aesthetic type of a way, enjoying that or creating that environment, uh, sonically, acoustically, making sound uh, in form of music. All of these things are basically form of create creativity. Now, birds make music, but it's not the same type of music, right? type of music that mankind makes is very creative, very artistic, and in a sense, a lot of ways, intelligent. All right? Now, these, these are all pictures by which man is basically viewed to be in the image of God. Another way is this, is that mankind um, is deemed with this ability to have relationship and live in community. That's kind of how humanity lives. We have the ability to work in community, to live in community. 
we realize there's kind of a give and take with regard to that. Maybe a pecking order, if you will, but we understand that part of being able to be human is that we live in community with each other, whether it be a husband and wife relationship, you start having kids, you got community, you live at home, and you're trying to figure out things at home, or if you've got roommates, and you're trying to figure out who's next on the Xbox. You've got all sorts of things in which we try to live by according to, to, to community, and there's a give and take that goes along with that. Now, all of those things, I think, are part and parcel of the larger whole that, yes, we are created in the image of God. However, not all of those, I think, in and of themselves determine humanness or being made in the image of God. I'll give an example for why. Because what happens if you're somebody that doesn't have an up-to-par intelligence? You're maybe there's something. Maybe you have a severe brain damage, or maybe you're born with some sort of a birth defect that you can't think, or maybe you're you're comatose and you're unable to create, or you're unable to build, or you're unable to think critically about things. Does that mean you're less than human? I'll tell you what. That's the way our culture's going is it's beginning to look critically upon things of that nature and say, well, maybe consciousness, consciousness is, is, is a part of being human. The reality is, guys, it's not so much something that we do that determines our humanness or being made in the image of God. It's rather something we are. God, friends, has created you. You're created by God. He made you. He made you. He knows you. That's something that God has done. God has, in creating you, has created you in His likeness and in His image. Now we'll look at this more next week as to what has happened to that likeness and has happened to that image in the sense through sin because it's been broken. It's been fractured and destroyed to some degree. However, there are remnants of it that still are there. But the reality is that because of the fact you are made by God, you are made in the image of God. Therefore, you have dignity, value, and respect. It's not just something that you hope to have. Maybe the culture oppresses it or pushes it down or thinks less upon you. The reality is we live in a culture that has a tendency to look at people and say, you are more human or better than somebody because you're a good singer, you're a good gifted musician, you're a good artist, you're good looking, you're popular, you're a good speaker, whatever. We go down this list of all of these things that we have these tendencies to say they're better than somebody else because of what they're able to do. But the reality is, in God's eyes, we are all made in the unique image of God. Therefore, have it. We have that dignity that's been given to us by God. Now, it's an interesting thing, but this is exactly what the founders of our country believed. I mean, whether we understand it or not in our day and age, when we enjoy the privileges and the freedoms that we have, but a lot of times we fail to remember that they came from people, not all of which were Christians, right? a lot of them were deists, but they all had an understanding that somehow this concept of dignity, value, and respect, and right to vote, right, just rights, period, has been something that's been given to us by God, period. Okay? The second thing that we see in terms of what it means or how was God, or how, how was man created, is that we were created unique. Right? Take a look at the very next verse. It goes on and says this. 
Verse 26, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. Man, in the image of uh, God, he created him. And male and female, he created them. So first of all, one thing that we notice that God basically creates all of other uh, animals, so on and so forth. And he says, have dominion over them. So what we do find out in Genesis's account is that man is higher than animals. But he's not higher than God. Alright? He's lower than God, but higher than animals. Alright? One of the common misconceptions that our culture is, I think, oftentimes confused with is that we tend to think that, well, maybe man is God. This is very important to understand because this is part of a huge movement in our culture today. I think it's Deepak Chopra, um, Deepak Chopra has a, a, a new, it's called New Humanity. And it's this idea to basically saying that we can create a new humanity. And the way that this is basically established is by understanding that in reality, inside of every one of us, is a light of the divine. We are gods. And our biggest problem in culture and society today is that we just don't know that. That's the biggest problem. That's the perspective that's being um, basically parceled out wholesale by people like Oprah and by Eckhart Tolle and other people that are basically within that kind of genre of thinking, is that somehow we can make the world a little bit better because if we could just all understand that each one of us are divine, we've just got to tap into that. Once we tap into the divine, we can actually bring about, you know, world peace and a better life and so on and so forth. The problem with that is that that view of man is too high. It's too high. We're not God. At the same time, portions of a lot of the psychological method today tend to view mankind in terms of a humanistic perspective, evolutionary, and so on and so forth. And so, therefore, the idea that, you know, if you have been an abuser, you know, if you're somebody that just doesn't know how to control himself and you end up hurting people and wounding people, whether it be sexually or physically or whatever the case is, sometimes in some segments of culture and society... It's basically just viewed that the reason why you do that is because you are just a step above an ape who happens to have a car. And, and, and the reality is, is that that's too low. That view of mankind is too low. We're not animals, nor are we God. Nor are we God. Okay? We are somewhere in between. We are unique. God created us this way. Created us to have dominion over animals. Now, we, we're not against animals. We love animals, right? We're okay with animals. But what we're trying to say is that animals and plants and the rest of this created order in which we live in is not equal with mankind. This means that radical, paganistic environmentalists are just simply wrong. Okay? It's just simply wrong. Radical, paganistic environmentalism says that we are all in the same par that a tree has just as much right to life as a human being. And God says, no, it doesn't. In fact, to the reality, that this doesn't mean that mankind should be treating the world like his ashtray or his closet. Right? That's bad. That's called bad stewardship. And when we live like that, I don't think we're glorifying God to the maximum that we ought to be. So I think to some degree, environmentalists have a good argument, but they go too far. We are not on the same level as the world in which we live in. We are unique. 
We are called to steward it. We're called to take care of it. We're called to love it. We're called to respect it. We're not worship it. Okay, so that being said, the other thing that we see with regard to how man was created is that mankind is equal. Now here's the story. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 2. We'll read the story about this, picking it up at around verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said to Adam, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to man to see what he would call them, and whatever the man called them, every living creature, that was its name. The man gave them names for the livestock. You'd be a cow, you'd be a goat, you'd be an antelope, birds in the heavens, and every beast of the field. That was in the text, by the way. Uh, but Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. All right, you can imagine Adam just like, sweet God, thank you for looking for something else. That thing barks, right? That thing has a hairy back. You know, it's just like, is there anything else? And God's like, yes, yes, your helper is not going to have an antler. All right, and I was like, sick. All right, what happens, verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heaven. Verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed it up, and put flesh in its place, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, brought her to man, and the man said, now, in the actual Hebrew, it's believed that this is a song. This is not just a song. It's believed that this is a song. In fact, Hebrew um, teachers believe that even from creation, when God cre- created all things, there's some um, Hebrew scholars that actually believe God, God, it was like a musical. Not a bad kind, not like high school musical or anything like that, but like a good kind. Like where God sung everything into existence, alright? God sung everything, and we know that in the last days, whenever that day is going to come, we're told in the book of Zechariah, uh, is that right? I just blank. I just read the verse like two weeks ago, I'm blanking on it right now. I'm pulling a old guy. Um, the point is, is that it says that God sings over creation. God sings. God is a singing God. Singing is a way of demonstrating rejoicing and love and excitement. So some Hebrew scholars believe God sang into creation all things, and God will sing over creation and all existence in the the final days. And it's here, Adam, after God creates woman from Adam, he sings over his new bride, says, This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So, the important thing to understand with regard to this is that God created out of Adam, out ahead of her, in terms of a chauvinistic perspective where man is better than Eve, and not from behind in a sense where she's to be treated with less dignity or respect, from out of his side. She is part of him. She's to be his helpmate. Sometimes women fight against this concept of being a helpmate. I think it's actually a beautiful term in the Hebrew. And women, get this. It implies that men need help. Right? And you're like nudging the guy next to you like, you do need help, right? Yes, God is totally agreeing with you. All right? So, God's on your side, all right? Even if you're man ain't. Okay, the point is, though, is that God creates man and woman to be equal. 
Men and women, men and women were to be created equal. This is how they came. This is how God established it. Unique, right? There's no differences between men, men and women, right? Right? I mean, this is why I, why I married a woman. I didn't want something with fur on its back. I mean, I, I wanted a, a woman that's soft and gentle and she's kind and she doesn't yell at me and she's just sweet and, and, and there's distinctions between male and female. However, equal. Right? It's important to understand. Our culture fights against this. We tend to think, and I think a lot of it is a reaction against male chauvinism of the 50s and so on and so forth. And I would even go so far as to say bad Christian men who misinterpret Bible texts like this and abuse other passages and they take advantage of women and they suppress them and they oppress them and they throw verses at them. And they just basically abuse them with God's word. Shame on those guys. The bottom line is, our culture is revolting against that today. Hence, the great move to basically feminize men and masculinize women. That somehow, we can bring them together to some happy medium and call that equality. That's not biblical equality, guys. Men are to be men. Women are to be women. We've got different roles by which God has created us, however equal. Alright? What's happened through the modern day feminist movement is that women have basically revolted against the current uh, heresy, I would even add, of the age by which male-dominated culture and society was saying, your job, your role is to have a wooden spoon in hand and bake cakes. Alright? That's your role. And women have revolted against that and said, listen, we can chew tobacco, we can get drunk, we can work on machinery, we can drive forklifts, we can go to war, we can shoot people and kill them too. Right? The problem is, is what's happened in the modern day feminist movement is that women are feeling as if we've got to prove that we're equal. If you just understood the Bible, you've got nothing to prove. God's on your side. He said you're equal. That's really good news, and that's liberating, guys. A culture's come along, but you've got to understand, we make a culture. Right? But if we let the Bible set us free and understand things through God's creative ways, men and women are equal, however, occupying different roles. Right? Different roles. Uh, I don't know too many guys that are like, you know what? Let me carry the baby full term. I'll, I'll do it. It's easy. No problem. Labor, take. Alright? I don't know too many guys are, that, are, that envy that. Alright? The reality is, is that we're different in that sense, in terms of roles, but equal. It's how God created us. And it's a liberating reality, if we can understand. So this is how God had created us, how we were made. And as we kind of move on, the next question I want to ask is this. What was man created to do? And this really has to do with the larger concept or issue of vocation. What was man created to do? Now I want to preface this little section here to say that everything that we're going to look at, all of this was done before the actual fall. Now the reality is, is everything that you're going to see here continues after the fall. Okay? So my point is that some would say, well... You know, maybe this, this, this was this way because of the fall is an issue and so on and so forth. You know, the reality is all of that we're going to look at now was, was basically established by God before sin entered the world. And after sin entered the world, 
most of, or all of this was basically reaffirmed to subsequent generations after which. So what I'm trying to say is that everything we're going to read now in terms of what man was created to do will be consistent throughout the entire Bible. It doesn't change. It's the same. So the first thing that we see in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, is we're told that mankind was called to subdue and cultivate the earth. Okay, verse 26, we already read that. Why don't you jump forward real quick to take a look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. It says this, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The idea of taking the soil and working it, creating it into a beautiful garden. All right? And then Genesis chapter 9, verse 2. This is after Noah um, in the flood and destroyed the entire world. Noah gets off of the boat. God speaks to him and basically reiterates the exact same um, establishing truth as to Noah as he did to Adam. To cultivate the earth. To till the soil. To create. This is the way the Hebrews had understood this. was this idea of basically taking the earth and making beautiful gardens. Alright? It's not just letting things grow and just wherever you scatter seeds is letting it grow. It's the idea of like cutting it away and clearing it out and establishing it, creating it in this beautiful order. It's also the idea in terms of cultivating and subduing it that man needed a place to live. So, wonderfully, you know, somewhere along the line, man realized, you know, if you take this, you know, this, this hard soil and form it into a block, if it's left out in the sun long enough, it gets really hard. So somewhere in his mind, he thought, man, if I make it into like a brick that I can stack and let it dry and I do that times, you know, 100,000, can actually have enough bricks to build a house. Maybe I can build an addition to my house. And maybe if I build my house next to a little river, this is just killer. And he's just thinking, you know, maybe if I take one of those like ficus trees and stick it into a pot and it made out of clay, it, this is awesome. So this is the idea of filling the earth, subduing it, exercising dominion over it to create something beautiful. That's what God says. To subdue the earth, to cultivate the earth, to fill it. Why? This is the next thing. And then God says to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. This is basically God just saying, kids. You guys like kids? You like kids? Kids are a blessing. I think we live in a kid-friendly area, right? I think San Luis is a very kid-friendly place. Right? You walk around downtown, you see... You know, moms pushing little kids around and dads. I love, I love just seeing dads like hanging out downtown with their kids. I saw a friend of mine yesterday. I went to the Mac Superstore and, and I was down there and he was down there. He was with his daughter. And I just, that's just cool. I, I, I like being able to see, you know, people really invest in their kids. You know why? God likes kids. God likes kids. And one of the first things that God commanded or asked Adam to do is to be fruitful to multiply and to fill the earth. Here's the way this logically unfolds. Alright? Beginning in the Garden of Eden, have kids. Lots of kids. And your kids are going to grow up. They're going to have kids. And they're going to be learning the ways of making brick and tending gardens and trimming trees so that you can get maximum fruit off of those trees. And, you know, learning recipes from mom and Dad, perhaps even as well, and learning how to do all of these things that are a part of the original creation. And as they learn the ways of God and learn the ways of cultivating the earth that God has given as a good gift, 
as you grow, as you fill a particular region, then you grow and take over the next neighborhood. And as you grow and fill that area, you grow out and you move into the next neighborhood. And you keep doing that over and over and over again until you fill the earth. And what happens is if you've got an earth filled with people who are cultivating, tilling the ground, subduing it in a way in which God is glorified, God is the ultimate treasure, families are finding joy in God, you've got this world in which God says, this is how I want it to work. Let the earth be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Right? We're going to look at this more next week in terms of the fall. That's not the way things all happen. Everything breaks. Everything's out of rhythm. It's all frustrated because of sin. We'll look at that more next week. The third thing is this, is that basically the natural overflow of subduing, cultivating the earth, being fruitful, filling the earth, is really creating culture. Theologians have oftentimes viewed this as called the, uh, the cultural mandate, to go into the world and to create culture. Now, culture really is nothing more than what we do. It's kind of the junk drawer term for which we throw everything we do into it. All right? You know? Um, but, but part of that is taking the world in which God has given us as a good gift and creating this culture. Right? We've got things like food. Right? You guys say guacamole. Yeah. Tri-tip, right? Uh, flank steak, fajitas, right? I mean, we told you we liked animals, right? We like cows because they have steaks, and we like pigs because bacon, and, you know, and it, it, God's a good God. But the point is that part of creating cultures, cultural mandate, is by being people that love God, love all the things that He's created for us, we are seeking to make His name known because He's a great God who's very good and kind to all of His creation. We are literally creating music that's beautiful. We, we, we pay attention to, the, to aesthetics. We like poetry and literature and art and drama. And the reality is, is all of this flows out of the character and nature of who God is. Have you ever wondered why we like art so much and poetry and things like that? Because God is an artist. God is a creator. God is a designer. Right? God is the master at creating narrative. That's what I've been trying to communicate these past few weeks. The Bible is a narrative. It's a script of God's redemption. Maybe this is part of the reason why we love movies. You know, why we love short stories or books, we want to get into another novel or something like that. Maybe it's because a part of the DNA of who we are is we are finding ourselves in the middle of a narrative. God's narrative. Which He is the main role. And the author. And the finisher. Right? Part of this is is the bigger picture of this cultural mandate that God calls us to go into the world. To make my name known. Do all of these things that I've created as God. Okay? Another thing. Man is created to enjoy creation. Okay, this is uh, definitely implied in the first few chapters of Genesis, but it's also picked up by the Apostle Paul as he's writing to Timothy. I think this is very significant because I think what's going to happen here in just a few short years after the birth of the church is going to be hit with a very uh, horrible movement called Gnosticism. Because want to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. 
What's going to happen in just a few short years is Gnosticism is going to come on the planet and it has this horrible perspective of what's going to be called dualism. And what happens by around the 4th century, 5th century, somewhere around about 4th century, I would say, uh, mid-300s, there's a guy by the name of Manny. He lived in, um, M-A-N-I, he lived in Persia. And he was basically brought up in sort of the Zoroastrian of his day. But what happens was he fuses Zoroastrian thought um, with some of the Eastern Chinese-type religions, but also with Christian thought, Judeo-Christian thought. What happens is he formed a religion that was called uh, Manichaeism, that was one of the most powerful religions from around the mid-300s all the way to around 1,000. All right? So for almost 1,000 years, Manichaeism was the most powerful, most profoundly influencing type of religions um, within the known world. In fact, one of the most famous guys that was a Manichae for a while, his name was Augustine. You guys heard of Augustine? He lived in the 300s. One of the church fathers. He had written a lot of theology. He's a very brilliant mind. He was a Manichae. He followed the teachings of Manichaeism. And what had happened was, when he converted to Christianity, he began to recognize that one of the, uh, one of the faults or problems with Manichaeism was it taught this concept of dualism, meaning that we as human beings are composed of two major components. One, soul. Two, body. Right? And the logical thinking of this was that everything that's physical is bad. Everything that's physical is bad. You eat, it's bad. You have sex, that's bad. You enjoy, you have emotion, that's bad. It's all emotional. It's all, it's all part of the body. But what's good is the soul. Right? So you pray. You think. You, you, you talk to God. Or you talk to your perspective or perception of who God is. And there was this dualistic perspective that basically had a view on the creative order as being bad. I hate to tell you this, but this has also crept into the Christian thinking. This is definitely part of a lot of times Christian thought. It was definitely a part of the first century church where people were saying, I can't eat you know, meat, it's bad. I was saying, it's not bad. Meat's really good. Meat's really good, especially with sauce. But he's like, he's fighting against, that was a good one, he's fighting against this perspective that physical stuff is bad. Paul's saying it's not bad. God said it was good. And he never recanted that. Okay? So in the Christian world today, we have this tendency to think, well, like, man, the most important thing is just praying and the soul. And yes, that's important. But you know what? God created the world too. And he loves this world. He created the order. Now, he loves it so much, I'll tell you what, there's going to come a day in the same way that He loves you so much and He's going to redeem me through Christ. This whole world order and system is also going to be redeemed and renewed. That's how much He loves this world. Alright? What's happened, I think, in Christian circles today is we've come to just think in terms of spirit. Spirit's ultimate. Yes, it's ultimate in a lot of ways, but at the same time, not to diminish or to think less of the physical. God made. And he said it was good. So when we begin to think of the physical as being bad and sort of kind of this cosmic fight against the spirit, we are not thinking biblically. We're thinking Eastern. Not the biblical Eastern. Okay? We have to change the way we think about this. That all of God's created order is good. 
All of which. And He will redeem it. When we take this approach that everything physical is bad, here's what happens. We as Christians remove ourselves from everything physical. We're like, ah, who cares about the earth? It's going to be destroyed anyhow. Who cares about the planet? Who cares about suffering people? Who cares about hurting people? It's it's just the world's trashed anyhow. That is not the heart of God. Okay? God cares about it all. Body, soul, and spirit. And He will redeem.